0: So today I have Dr. Jesse Rissman here. He is a cognitive neuroscientist. He is married to my friend Sarah, so I'm I was lucky to get this introduction. He runs the Rissman Memory Lab here at UCLA. And I am so excited to share all of the knowledge that is stored up in his big brain over the next hour. Um, we're going to get into how to optimize memory and how to use memory more effectively. And we're going to learn cool stuff like how he's using virtual reality in his lab to increase um, your ability to what?
1: Remember. Remember. Uh, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> we,
0: I guess we all need VR. So Jesse, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Kelly. A pleasure.
0: It's it's so great to be sitting here at UCLA and in your office. I mean, there are pictures of the brain all, all over the place, including your coasters. So <laughs> you can tell that you're passionate about it. But why don't we start from the beginning? Did you always know you wanted to be a cognitive neuroscientist or did you even know what that was? I
1: wouldn't say I always knew. When I was in college, initially, I had very broad interests. I took classes in I mean, some classes were biology-related, but I also took art history and literature and a lot of political science classes and thought maybe I would go into international relations and diplomacy. And it was really in my second year of college where I happened upon a cognitive neuroscience class that was being taught for the first time. It was a visiting professor, and I signed up for that. And that really got me inspired in this topic. I had before um, only encountered it through like there was a Discovery Channel documentary, I remember in the mid-90s, called The Brain or Universe Within. And I, I had watched that and thought, oh, this is fascinating. There's such cool tools. Um, functional brain imaging was just becoming a, a thing that that could be used to measure the functioning of the human brain as people were doing cognitive tasks, as they were learning and remembering and ex- experiencing. Emotions or producing language, and for each of these processes, trying to figure out what in the brain uh, was responsible for that. And so, I took this class, and it got me really fascinated and desiring to learn more. And yet, at the small liberal arts college that I was attending at the time in Massachusetts, uh, there were no more classes available. So. I begged the pre- professor to sort of keep teaching me about it, and we did a one-on-one tutorial the next semester, and then I transferred to Brown University, where they had a cognitive neuroscience major available to undergraduates, and that I really solidified my interest. And by the end of that time, I, I decided I wanted to get involved in the lab and, and sort of pursue this as a potential career.
0: Wow. So in that first class, what were the exact things that you were learning and this professor that you decided to sort of become his mentee, what were you learning from him in that, like, one-on-one period?
1: Oh, well, there was this big, fat sort of tome that had come out called The Cognitive Neurosciences. I think it had, like, over 100 chapters, and um, we used that as the kind of textbook for the class. It was, each article was written by a leader in the field, so it started with the basics of visual and auditory perception and then worked up to sort of attention and language and and memory and ultimately consciousness. And we worked through all of these chapters. I would do the readings and then come back and discuss it with him. And I was just learning about uh, the latest developments in the field. A lot of the work at that time, what we knew about the brain was based mostly on patients who had brain damage to specific areas. Um, So if you had damage to this area in the left sort of prefrontal cortex, you would have trouble producing speech and language, and trouble. If you had damage to an area a little further back, would affect comprehension but not production. And damage to the hippocampus would affect memory. So that's sort of how we knew what areas of the brain um, did what. And then fMRI really just came onto the scene uh, in 1992. So just a few years before I started studying this, and it was it was very new, but there were some studies that were coming out that were showing that we could map the brain in in healthy, awake sort of humans who were doing um, these tasks. And and that was really the new frontier and in some ways still is uh, a very influential technique. And it's what we do in many of the studies in my lab to this day.
0: Can you explain what fMRI is and how it works and what kind of like what you're looking for?
1: Sure. Yeah. So fMRI stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. It it's like the MRI yeah, you get on your knee or your hip, right? This is one of those big donut-shaped MRI scanners that you would um, encounter if you had uh, a broken bone or needed medical attention. But in this case, uh, we're doing it in a way that scans the brain very rapidly and does so in, in a manner that's sensitive to changes in, in blood flow and blood oxygenation. So when you're lying in the scanner and being presented with pictures to remember, words to make decisions about. For every one or two seconds that you're engaged in the task, we're able to get a snapshot of what your brain was doing right then, sort of where the blood was flowing, which areas of um, neurons were likely activated at that time. And so every one or two seconds, we just get a picture of your brain, and we do this over the course of usually a full hour. The person's in the scanner, and oh, during that time, they're encountering. Lots of information, making lots of decisions. And depending on what you want to study, you could, you could have them do anything. They could make emotional judgments. They could uh, make memory judgments. And for each uh, decision they make, they can push a button and you can determine uh, were they correct or incorrect or how did they perceive the stimulus and then go through the data back in the lab and try to figure out what parts of the brain were engaged um, when they were correct versus incorrect, things like that.
0: Wow. So is blood flowing to the specific areas of the brain that's being used at that time and does how does the oxygen uh, like the oxygen level change?
1: Yeah, so it's a fortunate characteristic for us as neuroimagers that when neurons of the brain are more active the the brain has a way sort of an intrinsic mechanism to deliver more richly oxygenated blood to that area. So if this little patch and your sort of right prefrontal cortex happens to have more neural activity, several seconds later, there's going to be this rush of of blood to the area to replenish its metabolic needs, to give it more glucose and and oxygen, the nutrients it needs to to keep going. And so areas that are working harder and have more neural activity get more blood flow. And the blood flow is what we can measure because the blood contains hemoglobin and that because it has iron has an effect on the magnetic properties of the signal. So the magnetic part of magnetic resonance imaging relates to the changes sort of in, in these um, hemoglobin levels.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So what are what are some of the things you're looking at in your lab using fMRI and trying to understand, like, do you have specific studies going on with fMRI?
1: Yeah, so we have a number of different um, studies that use this technique. In many of the studies, we're we're, we're looking at healthy young adults, usually college students, who sign up to participate in the study. Volunteers. And volu- yeah, they volunteer. <laughs> we, we pay them a little bit for their time. And if you're listening and you're in the LA area, you can look up our lab and, and see if there are studies that are recruiting subjects. Um, but some of the studies look at other populations. I have collaborations looking at uh, older adults who are usually age 60 to 80. And we compare them to younger adults on many of the same memory tasks. I've done some work collaboratively with faculty in the psychiatry department looking at individuals with obsessive compulsive disorder or anxiety disorders and depression and trying to see how that changes brain function. But in my lab, most of the the work we do is looking at functioning in the healthy brain. And we give participants a task to do in the scanner or sometimes several different tasks where they'll usually look at pictures or words and and make judgments about them. So just to give a specific example, in one experiment, we we have people make judgments about photographs that are either from events in their life or events from someone else's life. And we actually capture those events by giving the participants wearable cameras, little necklace-mounted digital cameras that they wear as they go about their day to day life, often for several weeks. So we have this library of experiences that we've it's captured. Like the
0: Truman Show. <laughs> yeah. So we, we,
1: they they volunteer to do this, and we don't disseminate their photos to the public. They're just used in the context of this experiment. So there's not a big sort of privacy concern, but they do capture all of their interactions. If they're students, we get some photos of them obviously going to class and going to their dorm, but they also will go to parties or sporting events or walk through campus and have conversations. And and so over the course of each day, we'll get like a thousand photos and we can pick certain experiences that we think will be memorable. And then several weeks later, when they're lying in the MRI scanner, we're showing them for the first time these photos. They hadn't gotten to see them before because the camera doesn't actually have a, a viewing screen. So the pictures were all captured by the camera, taken to our lab to upload. And then for the first time in the scanner, they're encountering events that they experienced sometimes four weeks ago or one week ago, or maybe not at all if they're photos from someone else's life. And for each photo that they experience in the scanner, we could see what's happening in their brain. Are they reliving it in sort of a vivid way um, where they're recollecting that experience and kind of traveling back in time and, and remembering what happened? Or are they just sort of moderately familiar with the photo, but they don't quite recall what happened? Or are they did they forget it? That was something that we know was from their camera, but they say I don't rem- remember that at all. Um,
0: so are they explaining how they're reacting to that experience, and you're getting the the MRI images, or can you can you tell by looking at the MRI images, or have, do you have an idea by looking at those images whether they would have recalled that event or?
1: Yeah. So we we. We 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 do it both ways. Like in, in many of the experiments, we do ask them to tell us what they're experiencing. In most experiments, the participants don't speak in the scanner, so they tell us with a button press. We give them buttons that they can push, and they learn that this button means, like I vividly recollected, and this button means it's familiar, and this button means it's it's novel. I, I haven't seen it before, and sometimes that gives us a a good measure of what they're experiencing but you ask, can we tell from their brain activity? And amazingly, uh, we found that in experiment after experiment that we can. So that was one of the things that I first started working on when I was a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford before I started my own lab here at UCLA. And we were funded through the MacArthur Foundation's Law and Neuroscience Project, which was this really ambitious effort to get legal scholars and neuroscientists to collaborate and talk together about how neurotechnology might have implications for for the law. And in many legal cases, eyewitness testimony is the best or sometimes the only evidence that comes up for for what happened and and what people experienced in an event that happened usually months or years ago. And we wanted to know, well, if if there was a way to probe someone's memory, kind of hypothetically, we're not trying to invent some technology that's going to be used in the courtroom. We just wanted to know, can we scan someone's brain when they're looking at photographs of a past experience and read out in response to each photograph, is it something you recognize or not? So we did experiments looking at that, and we found that pretty well we could tell, like with 85 to 90% accuracy, uh, whether the photograph was from your life or someone else's life. And we could also tell if you were experiencing a very strong recollection or sort of a weaker memory for it.
0: So how would it work in a courtroom with someone who'd experienced something if you didn't have the images of I guess the event?
1: Yeah, so this would only work if there were either images of the event or or perhaps we haven't tried it with narrative, but if there was a like you you read a paragraph about the event or Heard audio from that was captured at the event. Wow. Uh, so that, that would be a way that it could play out in the courtroom. But I should say, I don't want to leave sort of the impression that we found that just because we could do this well, that it, it means that we could replace eyewitness testimony with brain scanning. We, we did a number of other follow up experiments showing that there are major limitations to what we can do. So even though in our controlled experiments, we could tell pretty well which photos were from your life or someone else's life. Or when we taught people information in the lab, like we showed them faces and then later skin, then we could tell which faces were familiar and which which ones they were seeing for the first time. But then we looked at sort of true versus false memories. And when when the participant said, like, I really feel like I saw this face before, or I really feel like that photo was from my life, even if we knew it wasn't, um, their brain often reacted in a way that suggested it was. So... The distinction between true and false memories is very murky in the brain. Sometimes we could tell them apart, but sometimes it was it was impossible. They, they looked, just
0: passionately yeah, believed a, it was part fall, of their yeah. life. If
1: you really believe in the memory, the reason that you feel it's familiar probably is that it reminds you of other experiences that you did have. It's not that it sort of came into your brain from nowhere. That, that every experience shares sort of overlap with other experiences, and so if you see a face and you feel like, yes, I, I definitely saw that one. In the set of faces I had studied in the lab, well, you may not have seen that face. We know that we never showed you that one, but it might have looked similar to other faces you've seen in your life or even other faces in the set. And it's the same with your life event. If if, if I show you a picture walking across the campus that wasn't from your life, you could have been to that place or a similar place. and, And it's not necessarily a completely inaccurate statement for you to say, oh, I think I remember that. It just... It wasn't that exact moment or it didn't happen in that way.
0: What I always find is super interesting is when I when I spend a lot of time on vacation or when I'm traveling, taking a lot of pictures and then sort of reliving those experiences through photos or if I journal when I'm traveling or journal during my life, those memories feel like they're almost solidified way more than the day-to-day when I don't. How can we improve our memory around experience if we want to and maybe is there a way to not get rid of but like lighten memories of trauma or something that you maybe don't want solidified in your brain.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. The cameras that we were using in in this study were actually developed as a life logging technology that the intended market for them was not cognitive neuroscience researchers like me who would do experiments but people would want these to capture their events in a way that's even more automatic than, than pulling out your cell phone and snapping.
0: I need pictures. that just for yeah. my toddler, yeah. honestly.
1: <laughs> and, and the way that they're implemented, the software that they come with actually helps you at the end of each day or at the end of each week, you can view a time lapse of your day or of the week. And that does that rehearsal, sort of re- revisiting all of these Events helps you to consolidate the memories. It reminds you of your experiences and kind of reactivates them. And every time you reactivate a past memory, you can strengthen it. So um, I think that the fact that we record so many photographs now of all of our experiences and we look at them on our phones and share them on social media uh, strengthens memories for those experiences that we photograph. But it might be at the expense of other things that we didn't happen to. So if you go on vacation, there might be certain moments you took a lot of pictures, and if you looked at those pictures, those memories will will live on. The times that you didn't have your camera, if you if you're not seeing those, they could be forgotten unless you journaled about it or told people about it or thought about it a lot. All all of that will help. And I'm not advocating that people should photograph uh, everything that they they do. Um, I don't wear one of these. We cameras, just need yeah, the camera <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we can cherry
0: pick the details yeah, we loved. I think that's the problem with. Pulling out your phone is it, it really can interrupt a moment if you were just trying to be in the present and experience it. You know, you're looking through that lens and you're not really even just, I guess, looking through your eyes, right? It's a it's a smaller lens, but it do want to capture those moments. What about the memories that we don't want to solidify in our brain? Because it seems, I mean, it's just really interesting to me that we go to therapy to talk about traumatic or depressive things, but that's the very thing we talk about over and over and over again.
1: Yeah. So it's not something that we're currently working on in in my lab, but there are lots of people interested in understanding these aversive, unwanted memories that are so disruptive to our lives that we see in people suffering from PTSD particularly. Um, But this also colors a lot of experiences of people suffering from depression where just negative events just keep Coming back to mind, it's like ruminating, and ruminating, and ruminating on them again and again, regretting things from the past, uh, or wishing you had made different choices, and also worrying about the future, which is sort of using your past memories to predict that the future will also be bad, and these are all going to be so detrimental. So, I think what the the memory literature seems to be showing is that our memories for the past are not set in stone; they're not sort of locked away like a hard drive and that they've been stored and they're going to be, be stable for our lives. They're, they're actually modifiable and there are certain ways or, or tricks that we can reactivate the memory and bring it back to mind and then disrupt the association between the knowledge of what happened and the emotional response that's sort of bound to that or strongly associated. So a memory of a bad experience, and for example, in PTSD, you you often overgeneralize that to other circumstances in your day-to-day life if if there was a loud like roadside explosion that you experienced while in combat that was a traumatic event and you lost uh fellow soldiers in that and narrowly survived like that's going to be a painful memory but then it's a particularly problematic if every time you hear a loud noise you You sort of freeze and shudder and worry it's going to happen again. So how do you sort of break that association between the loud noise, which is a trigger, and the emotional response? Or, I mean, any other kind of of memory would be the same way where you have sort of your knowledge of what happened, and we don't want to fully erase that. You don't want to take sort of an event from your past and wipe it out completely, but you want to be able to think about it in a way that's more safe, we can take a different perspective. And so exposure therapy is one technique for anxiety disorders and for um, traumatic memories to sort of confront the, the fear evoking or anxiety evoking stimulus, but to do so in a safe context and realize like, I can think about this and I'm still safe. It even works for phobias like spider phobia, arachnophobia. So you show people spiders and they initially don't want to look at the stimuli, but if you continue to sort of expose them to it, you can uh, weaken that association. There's also sort of a newer approach that that takes into account a phenomenon about memory that's called reconsolidation. So when we have an experience we've known for a long time that the brain consolidates that experience and all of its details into long-term memory, so sort of store it away. But every time you think about the experience, again, it gets reactivated and it needs to be reconsolidated sort of consolidated again. And during that period, when you remember a past event, but before the reconsolidation has occurred, you have this little window of opportunity to kind of meddle with the memory and maybe change it. And so by giving someone a drug that calms them down and relaxes them while they're thinking about a negative experience, they can then sort of update the memory to replace that negative association with a more positive association. So there's clinical trials underway trying to use drugs or other um, behavioral techniques that that take advantage of this window of opportunity during reconsolidation to reactivate a past memory and then edit it a little bit.
0: Wow, is yeah. that also why when people retell the same story for years and years and years, but it slightly changes and slightly changes over and over and over again, where it's not the exact experience that they maybe had years ago, but retelling it, it's sort of it's almost like a game of telephone.
1: Yeah, so that happens a lot with our memories that as we Recount stories again and again. Certain details might morph a little bit and and change. And and each time you tell it, let's say you make a, a small error about what month it was or who was there, or what exactly happened. Then when you retell it, sort of the error might get woven into it. So I think you're exactly right that that probably affected the reconsolidation. That that first time you told the story, the memory was was. Somewhat more true to form, but because our memory is imperfect, other details that seem plausible got woven in. And then the second time you would tell it, those details feel like they were part of the real memory. It's very hard to tell. And eventually you can have a completely false narrative of part of the experience. And we've seen this happen in in the public with with Brian Williams, the news anchor, who had sort of a a detailed story about an experience sort of. Um, with a helicopter sort of under, under fire that ended up not being true. And I don't think he was trying to lie. I think that it was just a false memory. It's happened to, to other people in the news as well, where they confuse other people's experiences and things they've heard and seen and read about gets sort of woven into your own and then it starts to feel real.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like it happens a little bit with my 98-year-old grandmother where every book she reads is now part of her life. She'll tell stories of her childhood. And we're like, I'm pretty sure that that's just like the nonfiction book you read last week or yeah. the fiction book you read last week, depending on what she's reading. But it's interesting the way that the memory that our brains work and memory works. And I'd love for you to explain it a little bit more and in, in, in detail. Like, what is the difference between short-term memory and long-term memory? Obviously, like being short and long, but how do we, how long is your short-term memory and and when when does long-term memory start? And how, how can we really solidify our memories and in, in into our long-term memory.
1: Yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic. It's actually something that um, nicely tracks sort of my progression as an academic researcher. When I was in graduate school doing my PhD at UC Berkeley, I was studying short-term memory, and and by short-term memory um, in the field of psychology, we mean memory that's held in mind on a moment-to-moment basis. So this is usually something that you recently experienced or thought about that's sort of active in your mental workspace and available to you for a period of 10 to 20 seconds, maybe up to 30 seconds. It's just it's something that you're actively holding on to. That's what we think of as short-term memory. Anything sort of longer than that requires different systems in order to keep that memory available to you. So while while we're talking sort of the content of our conversation, it's all available to you in short-term memory. The tabs are open. But yeah. But if we, <laughs> if we took a pause and then came back in five minutes, if you weren't actively thinking about it, the way that you would have to retrieve it is from long-term memory. So long-term memory doesn't need to be that old. It could be something that happened a few minutes ago. It's, it's, it's just, it's sort of escaped from the sort of this active attention-based maintenance that we call short-term memory. And now, In order for that memory to be available it needed an additional step of processing and that step involves the hippocampus so this is a region of the brain it's tucked away in the medial part which is middle part of the temporal lobe you have one on each side of the brain and um, it's this little seahorse shaped structure that is critical for forming new long-term memories and also plays a, a strong role in retrieving them and we know from patients who have had this area um, either removed surgically or, or damaged dramatically, um, this affects their ability to form new memories. So they, they're not able to take something from short-term memory and commit it to long-term memory. Uh, so the, the work I did in my PhD was looking at sort of how we hold information in mind on this very short-term basis. So we give people a face or a a scene to remember and then 10 seconds later we would test them and we would see during that period of 10 seconds while you were waiting to be tested, what was happening in your brain when nothing was on the screen, but you were holding this, this face or scene or words in mind. And we we were, we were interested in looking at how sort of the prefrontal cortex and the parietal cortex that are involved in maintaining your goals, specifying what is it right now that's important for me to do. Um, If you're given a task, then it's important for you to keep this face in mind. But on a moment-to-moment basis, your goals fluctuate. So we wanted to know how does the prefrontal cortex sort of tell areas in the visual cortex that have the information you need. In this case, maybe a face you're trying to remember. Keep that active. You're going to need it a few seconds later. You're going to want to keep this in mind. And we, we then gave people distractions. And we wanted to see how well could you handle if something popped on the screen that wasn't you weren't going to be tested on. It was just there to distract you. Could you could you filter out and suppress that distractor in order to keep information you want active? So my dissertation was about that, looking how, how areas of the brain work together to kind of synchronize during this maintenance process to keep information that's relevant active and keep information that's irrelevant sort of out of mind.
0: With diagnoses like attention deficit disorder, people who are... Said to have like be easily distractible what did you see in that you know in your postdoctoral work like what what were you learning were there different types of brains were there different things that would allow for people to disregard these distracting images or what
1: there's definitely a lot of individual differences or variability across people and how well they can filter out distractors so we we find you, that we could divide our participants up into ones who had good distractor filtering and they seemed to actively suppress or, or inhibit brain areas that were representing information that was irrelevant. So if we showed them an image that they were not going to be tested on, these people were good at sort of uh, damping down activity in the areas that process that image so they could keep the thing that they were going to be tested on active. And then other people, we're not as good at filtering out distraction. They showed lower performance on the task and less of the suppression. And we found that particularly when we looked at cognitive aging. So in work that I did collaboratively with a few other researchers at Berkeley, we, we scanned a group of older adults and they had relevant and irrelevant information. And it seemed like the older adults were just as good as the young adults at ramping up activity in the areas of the brain that processed relevant information. There are areas of the brain that are... Um, selective for processing, yeah, faces, and we could get see those areas having greater activity when faces were relevant. But those same subjects were the older adults were less able to filter out processing of the irrelevant information. So it suggests that a deficit in this sort of inhibitory control or filtering process affects memory. It's not just about how well, yeah, you said it's sort of good news about focusing on relevant information that that's not going to go away, but Filtering out distraction is something that gets harder with age. Some older people were good at it, but many of them were quite impaired at that. And that that lack of attention is one of the causes of memory problems that happen with age. That, that by not controlling or sort of prioritizing what's relevant and irrelevant, and over-processing things that might not be important, there are consequences for memory.
0: That's so sad in today's social media age yeah. when we're following multiple people that may not be relevant in our life, but just consuming all this content. What would your advice be to listeners on how to make sure that they have a sharp memory and they're really using their ability to kind of get rid of distractors?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's the... Million dollar question, or actually, with a million dollars, we can only make a, a dent in it. We probably need a hundred million to Love really minute answer. Minute. It. Yeah, um, I find it myself. I mean, I have always prided myself in having a pretty sharp memory, but it's not where it used to be at this stage of my life. I don't know if it that's just changes with age, or if it's because I'm increasingly, like everyone else, addicted to my phone, addicted to checking email, and and always being in touch with the outside world. And it's hard to just open up a Word document and write a paper, start to finish, or read um someone else's work. I mean, I do a lot of that, but there's there's so much distraction that happens just from these devices that are at our fingertips where you can um
0: so much, just consumption. Take to, yeah,
1: take a nice little break and scroll through Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. And there's so much stuff that people are talking about, and it's interesting and it's novel, and you can move through it so quickly and um, we're not getting as much depth. We we rarely, when you click through an article, sort of read it start to finish. You're just sort of getting the gist just of everything. Get the abstract, yeah. and you're good to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we share things sometimes without even fully knowing what we're sharing. And so I think for for everyone, for for adults, but especially for children and adolescents, this is really detrimental, and for the adolescent brain, which is still developing its attentional strategies, ways of effectively learning information, um, having these distractors present when you're doing your homework and you have um, your sort of TikTok or Snapchat or whatever else texting going on in the background. So much distraction, you're, you're not really setting yourself up for success. And you're also not developing an attentional style that can sustain its focus on one thing for a long period of time. So. Personally, I've, I've started to get interested in mindfulness meditation. I feel like that for me is, is a really good way to retrain my attention to just be able to hold my focus for as long as I can on the present moment, even if there's more potentially interesting things sort of out there, just trying to make myself be deeply interested in what it's like to experience the present, my breath, my body position, just um, that sort of Peacefulness, and then your mind wanders, and you catch yourself, and you bring it back, and you're you're just going, you're training yourself to to be able to sustain your attention on one thing, and and hoping, um, and I think there's good evidence to believe um, that this actually works. You're hoping that it will transfer to other tasks, so that when you need to do your work and stay focused, you're not as pulled by all of these potential distractors. But it's it's a battle now, and I think they're. It's very hard to study how much technology is changing the way that the brain works. We can't compare children these days to children sort of before um, <laughs> smartphones when were, we were um, kids. Yeah. yeah. You, you could do work looking at areas where um, people don't have access to smartphones, but there are cultural and demographic differences. You could do experiments where you'd sort of take phones away, but it's just it, this is it's hard to study, and there's really mixed evidence of screen time. Um, always bad probably not there's lots of ways that the technology gives us access to information that's um, probably valuable and enriching for for kids and teens and for adults but is it sort of always healthy don't know no. I mean I think it's it's there is increasing evidence that the the constant task switching that we do between sort of whenever you check your phone and then come back to work there's a cost to sort of reset your whole Attentional state. What, what was it that was relevant here? What was what was my goal? So you have to kind of reboot that back into working memory. And it's gonna slow you down relative to just staying on focus.
0: What's the average attention time that you see in your lab? Are
1: oh, you- that, that people can hold attention on one thing. That's interesting. We're designing a new experiment now that uses this really boring task where you just look at a series of letters. And you respond with a button press to each one, and for almost all of them, you just say sort of yes, 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 yes. And every once in a while, there's one that you're supposed to say no to, but it's rare. And we're, what we want us to look at is is how quickly people's attention laps, lapses during this task. So do you start mind wandering because the task is monotonous and it's it's not sort of novel or engaging? We 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 want people to try to do well at it, but we know that. Eventually, after twenty seconds, thirty seconds, like they'll start at least slowing down their responses will get slower and more variable, and then eventually they'll make errors and we're using that as a behavioral index of whether they're mind wandering and we um, are getting increasingly interested in in trying to understand sort of ways that mind wandering is bad for us and ways that it it might potentially um, be beneficial because we estimates suggest that we we spend somewhere between 30 to 50% of all of our waking time mind wandering. I mean, probably in this interview, um, you're thinking about what question you want to ask next. That's like one form of mind wandering, hopefully not thinking about <laughs> random things. But even, even me, as I sort of talk, my mind my mind wanders. And when you're doing your work at your computer, your mind wanders. And when you're attending a lecture or watching a TED Talk, your mind wanders. It's inevitable. And I feel like we wouldn't do it so much if it didn't have some value. So we're starting to explore whether as detrimental it is as it is for your attention to whatever it is you're
0: like you're learning. To do. Or whatever. Learning
1: in class. Yeah. You don't want to be mind wandering when the professor is talking about something
0: important. Especially if you're going to be tested.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and yet there is, there is work. It's a small body of work, but it seems pretty compelling that mind wandering um, in certain circumstances can foster creativity and insight and allow you to to kind of reactivate and connect different concepts and, and maybe come up with a solution to a problem that you were dealing with, that kind of aha moment when the pieces to a puzzle kind of pop into mind and you weren't even thinking about it. It could happen on a walk or in the shower or at the gym. And there's something special about that, about giving the mind some downtime and, and detaching from technology. It's hard to do. I'm not a role model for this yet, but I'm trying to give myself a little time each day to, to mind wander. In addition to the, the meditation, the goal there is not to mind wander, you're trying to quiet the mind and train your attention on just being actually intensely focused on on the present moment. And that's one mental state that I think is healthy. But the mind wandering, where you allow the mind to wander and, and allow the creative juices to flow, I think is also
0: important. It's almost like rest mode. Yeah. The computer is on, but you're really thinking about other things. Yeah. What? How are you testing? Obviously, you're using that, the letter test, but how are there other ways that you're testing mind-wandering? Or are you asking people after they've come out of, I don't know, yeah, we're lab? Yeah, just, we're just you- getting
1: this experiment off the ground, but the the goal is going to be to measure mind-wandering by changes in the behavior that we know from other studies. Suggest that someone was off task. So when they start slowing down, when they start making errors, but we also want to track their their eyes because we can look at their pupillary diameter. Actually, where the pupils are large or constricted, can tell you something about whether they're um, focused on the task or whether they're sort of living in their their head and their.
0: Good for your dating life, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> what are what are what are you looking for when you're looking at someone's eyes to understand if they're concentrating on you?
1: Well, there's this idea that when you're when your mind is focused on something other than what's right in front of you, it's called perceptual decoupling. So you um you remove your mind from the perceptual world, from the input coming in, and you sort of attend to the internal world, your own thoughts and feelings and memory and wherever that's taking you. And so you see sort of when something pops on the screen, there's you there's a normal way that your pupils will um respond sort of to to dilate or constrict. I mean, when something comes on, it can shrink a little bit. And and these changes in pupillary dynamics are affected by mind wandering. So when you're sort of perceptually decoupled, the responsivity of your pupillary size to changes in the visual input um, is altered in a way that we can measure. So this is, it's something that we're just now sort of starting to work on. This is not um, anything that we've published on yet, but other groups have been using this as a way to, to measure mind wandering. And what's cool is we can do it while people are in the MRI scanner. We can measure, we can record their eyes and um, record their behavior. And so we have these different indices of, of mind wandering. And there's a third way, actually, that there's a brain network um, that's sometimes called the default mode network of the brain. And it's a lot of different areas, but they all are very active whenever you're mind wandering and they get shut down whenever you're doing some other task. And so we can use activity in that network also to know sort of how much mind wandering is happening.
0: Fascinating. That's crazy. Yeah. What, what else is happening in Risman memory lab here at UCLA? What other studies do you have going on or what are some of the research that you've done in the past that you've published that you think would be fascinating for our audience?
1: Yeah. So in the intro, you mentioned uh, some work that we've been doing with virtual reality environments. And that's been a direction that I've been excited about for the past few years as we've developed these projects. So one of the things that we've known about memory for decades is that it's very context dependent. What that means is that when you learn something, it's happening in a given place. So right now we're in an office. That's the context for this conversation. But um, maybe next time I see you, it will be sort of a out at a party or or on the street. And so you have these contexts that might not be intrinsically sort of relevant to what's being learned or discussed, and yet are just sort of part of the experience and kind of come along for the ride. So what we've known for some time is that when you are tested, when you have to access past memories in a context that's the same as where you learned, you benefit from that. So you take the test in the same room where you took the course, the the, all the things in the room, the way that the room looks, and the wall color, and the um, the, the, the the way the students around you are sitting—like that—all is going to facilitate memories for the content that you learned in that room. If you take the test in a room that's different, you might struggle a little bit. Although you can imagine yourself in that original room, and that that's usually enough to sort of help you get the information. So, there have been some really cool studies where they have scuba divers sort of study information. While they're on land and then they get tested underwater or study underwater and you're tested on land and that doesn't work as well if you study underwater and then you're tested underwater you're going to remember these word pairs better just because the context matches so in our work we've we've created these very rich immersive virtual reality contexts and one task the participants are wandering through this sort of science fictiony moon base um, and in another task they're wandering through this really verdant kind of fanciful garden. My my grad student calls it fairyland garden <laughs> and um, the trees are all sparkling and there's shimmering water and footbridges and tree houses. And what we were interested in is whether we could have participants learn words in a foreign language, so learn new foreign vocabulary, which is something that a lot of people want to be able to do and get better at. And we wanted to see if we could make it more memorable by having it happen in these highly distinctive virtual reality context. And we actually had them learn words in two different languages that were unfamiliar. So um, participants learned sort of one set of words, uh, the English words translated in Swahili, and they wandered through the world and learned the Swahili translations. If you're learning the word hat in Swahili, they would sort of come upon a hat in the world and they click on it and they'd hear that it's "kofia," and they would repeat that back. And then in another... Condition They would wander through and they would learn the same words in a different language. This was called Chinyanja. It's another sort of African Bantu language um, that was unfamiliar to our participants. And the question was whether, so, so if you were learning in that language and you came upon a hat, you would learn it's it's Chisote. So, and I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, but this is yeah. one example. No one's um,
0: going to know uh, the yes, difference.
1: Uh, yeah. Maybe one listener, <laughs> <Yes>. maybe. <laughs> um, So we had participants in our experiment learn the two vocabularies, either in the same virtual reality environment or in two highly distinctive virtual reality environments. With the hypothesis that learning in the two different environments, if you learn one language in one place and the other language in another place, you would do better long term at sort of keeping them separate in your mind. It's hard to remember which translations go with which words. But by having the context as a way to kind of compartmentalize that knowledge and package it all, that I learned all of the Swahili content in this very interesting, memorable world, all of the chinyanja words I learned in this world. Then later, if we tested them, we only went in this experiment a week later, but it would be nice to see if it lasted longer. Could we see a benefit? And we did. People showed much less forgetting when they learned in two distinctive contexts than in the same context. And they showed less interference, they were less likely to retrieve the wrong translation. So that was great to sort of document behaviorally. But then we did the experiment with fMRI scanning. So participants learn the languages in virtual reality. That happened in the lab. And then we put them in the scanner and we tested them. So what how do you say sort of hat in Swahili and they have to think of the translation and then they speak it and we record in the scanner what they say. And we wanted to know when they do this retrieval of the vocabulary, do they reactivate a neural representation of the context. What that means is, are they bringing the environment back to mind? And that's something that actually with the current um, technology, we're able to, to see. We can't tell perfectly what people are thinking about. We can't like create a movie of whether they're imagining themselves on the footbridge or in the treehouse. But when you think about one world, the, the moon world versus the garden world, they're very different in terms of the kinds of Features you're thinking about, and they're different enough that we can actually decode in your brain which one you're thinking about. So just like with the memory work, I said we could tell from a brain activity pattern whether you recognize the face or not. We can actually tell from your brain activity pattern which world you're in. Now it's not perfect; we can't every. It's not every trial that we have sort of perfect readout, but we can tell significantly better than than chance, and we can use that information to see sort of how does neural reactivation this, this sort of Reinstating in your in your brain patterns that context does that facilitate your retrieval? And we found that on the trials where they showed the sort of the most reactivation of the world that they had learned the vocabulary and they did the best, they had the best performance. So we're sort of relating this mental reliving or bringing back to mind of the environment to the behavioral facilitation that we predicted.
0: Wow, in my brain, I'm thinking about how would I go learn? Something very dense in a short period of time. And how could I recreate that virtual reality? Like maybe I went, maybe if I went to the Huntington Library and took a specific thing that I needed to learn and tried to learn it in a compact period of time in that location and always would, I mean, would that, would there be a way to kind of allow this to work in our yeah, life now or a way that's to? That's a good question. Levels? Yeah, we haven't.
1: I mean, we, we did this work. Um, to test some theoretical questions about the role of context in memory, but it does sort of beg the question of could we turn this into a educational tool or an application where learning could happen in a way that was practical because the, the kind of learning that our participants did um was was not necessarily amenable to how you're gonna study for your chemistry test right. or um memorize uh what you want to rehearse for an interview that's coming up or something like that. So one way that I think you can do something like what you described go to the Huntington Library is this idea of memory palaces that you might have heard about. It's it's an ancient mnemonic technique. It means a trick for sort of memorizing information. Um it's sometimes referred to as the method of loci, but it's it's more recently just referred to as the memory palace technique where you imagine yourself In a familiar place, if the Huntington is a place that you know well and it's sort of near and dear to you, you might know your way around and you can even imagine yourself walking through it and sort of mentally placing things that you want to remember at different locations there. But most people use something even more familiar, like their childhood home or their current home or their commute to work. Um, And you just mentally place the things you want to remember along that route. And it turns out that our memory is just much. Better for remembering things in a visual, spatial sort of context. It gives us the scaffolding that we can think about as we walk through the the route in our mind's eye. The things that we place there sort of just appear back to us where we put them. And you didn't actually physically put them there. You just sort of attach different things you want to remember to different places in our minds because of the way we evolved. Uh, just are, Memory system is much better at navigation and spatial relations than it is at just arbitrary lists and random sort of association learning foreign vocabulary is, is hard. But maybe if you could sort of attach it to some spatial context, that could help.
0: So, so, so we have
1: done work with yeah, with, with these techniques in virtual reality where people have to remember lists of objects using this memory palace technique, and the, the virtual environment becomes their memory palace, and they walk through and they get to. Actually, in our experiment, they get to place these virtual objects. So they're remembering the basketball and they put it here and then the clock comes and they put it there. And then later we ask them um, when they're outside of VR to go through it and they remember it in their mind and sort of walk through the world just in their mind and try to reproduce the list.
0: Wow. I mean, I I definitely know personally that For example, I was a bridesmaid and I had to give a speech at a wedding and I used that technique, but I went into the space prior and looked around the room and and had like spots in the room that brought back a memory so that when I was in the room at the time, because I remember in speech class back at USC, that that was something that they'd have us do that we'd be in the room. Okay. So you were using this. Yeah, We were sort of using that, but I didn't know that it was called that. Um, But I almost like the idea of your commute to work or your childhood home a little bit better because it's more familiar and you can practice in that space even if you're not physically in it at the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, my commute to work within the age of ways is like different every day. Turn left, (laughs) turn right, turn left. Um, But but yes, I I agree that this method could be useful. That said, for as much as I've read about it and and studied it in, in these experiments in my own lab, I don't find myself using it um, that much. I find it to be effort, effortful and that there are so many other ways. It's of a little off- cumbersome. We can percent. offload yeah. much. I mean, we don't actually need to memorize as much anymore. If you're a student, you might need to memorize things for a test. But we can make lists and look at those lists and we can have Siri remind us of things that are coming up um, remind me to stop at the store on my drive home. And it sort of knows when you're driving home and sends the reminder. And there's so many ways to to sort of move what used to have to be stored in memory, sort of offload that to the cloud or just know it's going to be there on our hard drive or on the internet when we need it. And so that's another interesting aspect of how modern technology is affecting memory, that it's questionable whether memorization is, is as important. We need to remember... Where to find the information we need, like knowing that you put that list on your phone or that this is the email that will have the info you're looking for. But did you really need to memorize the address or anyone's phone number anymore? Um, maybe not.
0: Do you think it's detrimental to the brain or do you think it's freeing up space for the brain?
1: Yeah, it's debatable. I think that it's unfortunate that because things are so accessible that we don't ever make the effort, or we don't, I wouldn't say ever, but we don't often make the effort to use our memory and we don't realize how powerful it can be. We sort of think, oh, I'll never remember that. But through uh, techniques like this memory palace technique or other strategies, we actually can learn, you can kind of train yourself to be quite good at memory. Um, The book Moonwalking with Einstein that I highly recommend sort of tracks the journey of this journalists who decided to to investigate memory championships where people would compete, memory athletes uh, competing in memory contests. And he wanted to sort of write about it, but actually trained himself to become an expert himself. And he won the United States Memory Championship along the way, just showing that he never thought of himself as someone with an exceptional memory, but you can learn to use these techniques and get quite good at it. So to answer your question, I think it's unfortunate that people these days aren't sort of learning or getting that insight into what makes their memory work better. Um, By forcing yourself to do some memorization, I think you can learn to use your memory more effectively, sort of understanding what what works for learning and what doesn't. People get some of that intuitively, but they're not necessarily optimizing that.
0: If you wanted to learn something and put something in your long-term memory for the rest of time, what techniques would you use to... Memorize something?
1: It's a good question. There's no sort of perfect way to ensure that it's always going to be there. But the things that are going to be most effective are, I'd say, number one, sort of getting a good night's sleep, at least the day after you learn it. Good sleep in general is is very important for memory. But much of the consolidation that's happening after you learn something is happening behind the scenes. Some of it seems to happen even just during these periods of mental downtime when you're awake. So if you learn something and take a break, during that time, your brain might be chugging away, trying to lay down that memory. But certainly, if you take a nap during the day or a full night's sleep, and you measure activity in the brain, this can be done in humans with electrical recordings um, or, or fMRI, but it, it's mostly been studied in rodents who learn mazes, and you record from neurons during their sleep, and you could see they're replaying if the rat was running a maze while it was awake during its sleep the sequence of neurons are firing in a way that exactly reproduces the maze and all the turns. They're just sort of cycling through and rehearsing it. And the hippocampus is thought to be sort of teaching the cortex of your brain how to do this new skill or sort of consolidate these associations you learned. And so one answer is is getting good sleep because that will be important for consolidation. But another um, powerful thing for forming memories is actually the Practicing the act of retrieval, the what's sometimes called the testing effect or retrieval practice. So just pulling the memory back to mind, either by quizzing yourself or thinking about it. Um, every time you do that, you'll need to sort of reconsolidate it and that will strengthen the memory. You'll also get better at being able to find the memory. There's a lot of information that we have stored that is just not that accessible to us. We don't, we don't have a route to get to it. You experience that when you're doing the crossword puzzle and What's the name of that river that runs through uh, Paris or whatever? And you're just trying to recall. But if someone gave you multiple choice, you would know it. But, but in, the, in the moment, you're blocking on it. And sometimes just having practice sort of retrieving the information helps you get it. And that becomes um, a really powerful way to ensure that the memory will be durable just by practicing it.
0: So crossword puzzles for everyone every Sunday. Yeah, I mean that
1: at least help and that helps with the form of memory that we call semantic memory, just memory for general factual knowledge about the world. Uh, crossword puzzles are great for that, or Jeopardy, things, things trivia shows. But memory for our life events, what we call episodic memory, remembering events that happened at a specific time and place that um, it's a different flavor of memory. They're they're related to each other, but they're The mechanisms are a little bit different, and so rehearsing events from your life is something we do when we tell stories. We already discussed that. That strengthens at least the aspects of the memory in the story you tell. Looking at photos, thinking about past experiences, reminiscing, that's all going to strengthen our memory for our our autobiographical events.
0: Okay, so other than sleep and memory retrieval practices, what else can we be doing to improve our memory?
1: Well, one technique that research shows again and again as one of the most effective ways to improve memory is actually just getting uh, good physical exercise. There have been studies in which um, the participants have to learn something, they learn a list of words, or they learn uh, spatial positions of objects on a grid, and then afterwards they either sort of exercise or they just wait. And that act of of physical exercise gets all kinds of good things going in your brain, including this one uh, neurotransmitter, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that uh, affects the synaptic plasticity in the hippocampus. It makes hippocampal neurons sort of help them to stabilize the memories. And so that and other changes in your brain Um, that are associated with exercise seem to strengthen memory. It also is one of the more effective ways to stave off decline uh, when it happens with aging or or even early Alzheimer's disease that various techniques that people were excited about, doing Sudoku puzzles or crossword puzzles or learning a second language, this all might help a little bit, but the studies show pretty inconsistent results. Even the brain training apps that, that people do where they Play these games to strengthen their attention and memory. Some of them work, some of them not so well. Uh, It's very mixed, but physical exercise and study after study seems to be the most associated with preventing memory decline. Potentially, through its just general benefits in your vascular health, um, the the vasculature of the brain is very rich and important for uh, delivering all the areas of your cortex with the blood that they need. And so, having a good sort of healthy heart can help keep the brain healthy. But there are other um, neurochemical changes that also are linked with exercise. So that's one way. Healthy diet um, is another way, particularly the Mediterranean diet, is um, shown in a number of studies to benefit cognition and, and memory. A lot of work still being done on this. We don't know exactly what factors it is. Omega-3 fatty acids. Is it... Um, level of sort of sugars and carbohydrates. Um, the, there, there are many things uh, that go in, into our bodies that might affect memory. And so there are people working on that, including probiotics and how sort of the healthy gut microbiome might affect our cognition.
0: That's probably the most exciting research for me in my space, just understanding how our diet. And exercise and sleep practices can really affect our brain and our quality of life. super fascinating, so if it was something for your work um here at the lab and you wanted to remember some study or scientific conclusion, how would you recall a study and how would you study it to remember it so that you could recall that if you were if you needed it for a presentation or
1: yeah, so. I mean, I think that the thing that's most effective is to instead of just doing rote rehearsal, which some students think is going to be the most effective, they're just sort of rereading the textbook chapter, rereading the notes, looking at the slides again, and and doing that again and again, hoping the more times they encounter it, the better it will stick. Um, instead of that, doing this elaborative encoding, where you take the information and you think about how it connects to other pieces of knowledge. So just thinking about Whatever it is I'm trying to learn, and what other concepts go with, with that, and building these bridges, that integrates the memory into a larger network, sort of your existing knowledge of the world or the other concepts you're learning, get get linked together in a way that makes it all more memorable. So if you were learning a list of words, and I was gonna test you in an hour, just sort of thinking about each word might help you remember some of them, but if you try to link the words together in a story in your mind or take each word and picture what it would look like or do something to connect it with knowledge, how is it meaningful for you? How what's an experience from your life that involved that word? Then you'll do much better. And when I'm trying to learn something to prepare for teaching or to prepare for a talk I'm giving, I I try to do that elaboration. I try to sort of practice what I would say or think about how these things connect and then hope that in a few days when I need that information, it will come right to mind. Sometimes it does. And sometimes it's still, I mean, I study memory, but it doesn't mean. I, <laughs> it's foolproof. It. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's interesting to me because you have a couple of young children yeah. um, and how young minds learn, especially understanding these networks and how we can learn things that are relating to our world what's the best way for children to learn
1: so i think to some extent when children are young they have an intuitive sense of sort of how to learn a lot of it is through play and, and social interactions are really important for them um, the learning of language especially the first Language seems to happen with very little effort or instruction. I mean, there there are teaching tools to help sort of bolster reading and vocabulary and um, spelling and pronunciation and grammar. But in general, you can put a kid in any environment and they'll just by exposure to language, their brain will naturally latch on and learn the vocabulary and the, the syntactic rules. And they'll be able to um, speak and comprehend that as um they get older it becomes harder to learn new languages once that sort of critical period fades it just becomes learning where's the what's the critical period well i mean in the in the first um like 5 or 6 years of life it's very easy to learn one or more languages and um after that like during the next like age 6 to 10 6 to 12 it's still fairly easy and it just becomes harder after that so learning a new language in middle school or high school is going to be more challenging than if you were exposed in elementary school and learning it in college from from scratch with no prior background can be very hard. People can do it, some people are good at it and they make the effort and other people just really struggle despite substantial effort. Um, so so but that's a special case sort of language learning has these mechanisms that were thought to be more biologically prepared to Um, Encounter language stimuli and and learn them at a young age. For other kinds of learning, like in school learning um, mathematics or social studies, and sort of about learning about English literature, learning to become a better writer. It's not an area of my own expertise, sort of how to foster that in, in an educational setting, but being a parent of young kids, I think giving sort of helpful but encouraging feedback, sort of praising children when they um, do well, so they feel sort of proud of the learning that they are doing, but also sort of helping them understand things that they could do better. And just through that sort of feedback, they're updating their knowledge and um, fostering curiosity is really important. There's this whole sort of new subfield in memory research that's emerging, trying to understand the role of curiosity in memory and Even for adults, when we're curious about something and we want to know the answer, and then we get the answer, it's sort of that information sticks more than learning things that we're not, that we don't really care about. And so if you're taking a class um, and you're not as interested or curious about what you're learning, that motivation sort of is, is absent. You're not going to get the benefit. If you really sort of want to know the answer and you want to get feedback, you take a test and you want to find out what did I get wrong and why. Instead of just like oh I got an eighty five eh, I guess it's okay yeah um, you're, you're not you're not learning anything so using using the tests as a learning tool going back through it getting maybe to retake it or at least understanding what you got wrong and then updating that knowledge that's important if you get something wrong on a test and you don't know why um, then it's a missed opportunity
0: it completely mirrors my college experience like where I was the most curious. I excelled in those classes versus the classes I wasn't as curious and I didn't care as much about learning that subject. It it was probably an 85 and I didn't care too much to look at the test, (laughs) to be honest. So, wow, really fascinating stuff. What do you think you're most excited about um, in your field in the next couple of years?
1: Interesting. Well, one area that we're starting to get excited about, at least in my lab, and it is a technique that is getting more attention in the field, is the use of non-invasive brain stimulation. So this involves just applying, um, in our work, it's just a very weak electrical current uh, to the scalp, targeting a particular area of the brain, like the left prefrontal cortex in some of our experiments. And we do it while people are engaged in learning and memory tasks. And we found that when we stimulate this area during memory retrieval, we can boost people's abilities by... 15%, Fifteen percent, sometimes more. So it's not—it's not a—it's not a, it's not, it's not a, it's not a <laughs> magical technique where we kind of just turn on an area of the brain that was dormant. It's, some people just have this myth that we only use ten percent of our brain. That's not true at all. We're always using sort of all of the brain. There's not an area that's kind of untapped that that this electrical jolt turns on. But yet it seems that just a little bit of weak electrical current sometimes is enough to get the, the excitability of those neurons. Elevated and get them more engaged when you're uh, doing a learning or, or retrieval task. So we've been getting excited about that, but I also have some skepticism because I don't think that I don't think that this is a practical thing that we should all live in a society where we walk around with electrical brain stimulation <laughs> yeah. that, our, that our brains are suboptimal and need sort of electricity being applied to, to work properly. A jump so start. Yeah, so I'm a little <laughs> worried about whether it's, sort of ethically, this is something that we want. To become sort of broadly used in society. And and there's also some questions of how strong or replicable some of the effects in the literature are, and maybe some of the findings are overstated. So that's one area of interest. I already talked about my interest in sort of mindfulness and and mind-wandering and how it pertains to attention and memory. So that's something I'm excited about. In the field, I think, of functional neuroimaging, what's been um, a growing trend is the use of these pattern analysis methods that really take advantage of machine learning techniques. So we can teach computers to uh, recognize patterns in data. You just feed in data, and um, it can sort of learn to categorize it and, and make sense of it. Sometimes we don't know how the machine does that, but this is how sort of Google is able to add captions to images without, I mean, they can just take a picture and say, oh, that's a, there's a giraffe, and there's a child, and there's a tree, and there's a fence. And it, it, it can recognize that um, by having been trained on a really large set. So we can do the same with brain imaging data. We could take every brain pattern that we measure, feed it into the computer, and say, this is a pattern when you're looking at happy faces, and this is a pattern where you're looking at sad faces and angry faces. And so now ask it sort of, what's the pattern in your brain associated with these different sort of emotional states? We do it in our lab with memory tasks, looking at patterns associated with one environmental context or another, or the experience of recollection versus the experience of familiarity or the experience of novelty. And we can actually get down in, in more recent work to the, the level of individual items. Are you thinking about this particular thing or this thing? <laughs> Um, what words are you thinking? So you're about? telling
0: me you can mind read? So it's, it is a form, it's a form.
1: It's rudimentary, but it's getting better. But but that is essentially what it is. It's a it's a form of mind reading where you you scan someone. You treat their brain activity as a series of patterns. We usually analyze them much later. So the person does the experiment. We go back to the lab. We spend weeks sort of looking through the data and figuring out what they were doing during that one hour that we had them in the scanner. But there's new work that shows that you can do this in real time. You can have the person in the scanner feed the information into a computer really quickly, and then produce back some guess at what they were experiencing, like just moments before. And so I think that is an exciting direction for the field. It's problematic. There are ways in which this could could sort of go awry and, and be detrimental if it gets used um, in a way that's invasive and not respecting people's privacy. So that's something that we're trying to figure out: how can we use these pattern approaches to analyze and understand memory. If someone is reliving a past memory of your life, sort of what information about that memory can we catalog from your brain activity?
0: Crazy. Crazy. (sighs) So this was fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you all day, but we're out of time. So why don't you tell everyone where they can find you, um, where they can get information about your lab?
1: Thanks. Well, it's been a real pleasure Talking with you, and if you want to find out more about what we do in my lab, you can go to jessyrissman.com, R I S S M um, A N. That will take you to my lab address, which has a much longer URL, um, rismanmemorylab.psych.ucla.edu. But if you just go to jesserisman.com, that will get you there, and you could see um, papers we've published and a little bit about what we're working on.
0: So fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm so excited for the world to get to know you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers.